0: Welcome to Highlawn Baptist Church in St. Albans, West Virginia, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We're so glad you're here. For more information, visit us online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. For 2023, we're embarking on the year of our Lord, a user's guide to and through the scriptures. So grab your Bible and join us as we journey through the Bible. Well, we are in hour eight of our look at the Bible in a year, and we're Going over the remainder of Torah. Those are the the books that contain more of the law and of the commentary surrounding the law. But before we get into it, as always, we want to begin a study of God's Word with a season of prayer. So let's bow our hearts together. Heavenly Father, as we commit ourselves in this time into your hands, we ask that you would be the sole influence over what is said. What is read, what is done, Lord, with, with everything in these efforts, that you would allow your people to be molded and shaped into the image of your Son, that you would allow us to grow both spiritually and, Lord, in the grace that you provide us. So join with us now as we come into your presence and open both our hearts and our minds to your word as we seek to draw closer to you. In the matchless name of Christ we pray, amen. So last time we were here, we were looking at Exodus and the Exodus story, and that was a lot to get to. So as we continue on, I want to remind you that this is a very abbreviated survey of the Bible. So as you're reading through the Bible in a year, make sure you are journaling. Whatever you do, make sure you are journaling. And when you journal, write down what you already know, what you don't know, and what you might have a disagreement with, what you read that is hard for you to digest. Now in the terms of what we're going over tonight, if you want a more in-depth look at it, uh, we, in both our podcast ministry and our YouTube ministry, we have covered all of the books of Torah. So be sure to check those out if you'd like a more in-depth look at what you're reading. But give yourself the freedom while you're doing this, this hurried reading, if you will, or this, more, um, this quick reading. Make sure that you leave roadmaps for yourself, signposts for yourself of things so that later on you can swing back and do a more in-depth study on what took you by surprise and what is challenging to you. But anyway, right now we are covering the books of the Torah. We have completed our look at Genesis and Exodus. So that leaves for this session, Leviticus, the laws and the customs, the spiritual life and the religion of Israel, the book of Numbers, which is a misnomer in and of itself. The actual title of that book, if I remember correctly, is Through the Wilderness. It's called Numbers in Greek and later on because of the Septuagint translation. In English we call it Numbers because it has two censuses in it. But the real meat of the book is the wilderness wanderings. It took 40 days to get Israel out of Egypt and over 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. And lastly, of course, the book of Deuteronomy, which is the book that Jesus Christ quotes more often than any other book in Torah in regards as the book of the law, because it is a summation of everything that Moses has taught about and wrote about up to this point. So just by quick review, prior to Leviticus, Moses is rescued from death and is called by God to be not only any prophet, but the lawgiver of the people of Israel. Moses, alongside his brother Aaron, deliver God's message to Pharaoh. God judges both the nation of Egypt and its idols. Make sure you take note of that, that when the plagues come upon Egypt, they don't just address Pharaoh, they don't just address the people of Egypt, the the slavers, so to speak, but they also are judgments upon the Egyptian false religion, upon the pantheon. Israel is released from bondage, Egypt is defeated by God. The the greatest military force on earth at the time is hobbled by the Red Sea, by God using the Red Sea to destroy its legions of charioteers. Israel camps at the foot of Mount Sinai when Moses receives the law during a 40-day fast. Israel rebels against God, and this is where we see the golden calf incident. And Moses returns to deliver the law, and the rebels are judged, as the law is proclaimed. The tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant are then constructed. As Moses is coming down from Mount Sinai, he, he shouldn't just have the tablets of the law on them, on himself. He should also have a very detailed set of instructions, almost like he should be carrying blueprints under his arms, for this strange yet wonderful portable sanctuary that we call the tabernacle, and two other relic items. The first one is a reliquary, a box containing uh, the things of God that give evidence to God's testimony. In fact, often in Scripture, you hear it not referred to as the Ark of the Covenant, but the Ark of the what? The Ark of the Testimony, because this box contains the original tablets on which God himself wrote The Ten Commandments, it contains Aaron's rod. It contains a jar full of manna. Basically, it contains relics that evidence God's faithfulness to Israel. And then on top of that box, called the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of the Testimony, is placed the mercy seat, which is treated as a separate artifact, if you will, or a separate sacred object. Then the Ark, even though it functions kind of like a lid, It is suggestive of the throne of God. In fact, as we're going to see in just a second, it is a prophetic image of the throne of God. So last time we covered the Exodus route from Egypt, how they began in the area around Goshen, and once they were released from Pharaoh, crossed into the Sinai wilderness, Crossed over in what is today known as the Gulf of Agaba, the Red Sea, and into the land of Midian, where Moses had been a shepherd for 40 years. More or less, God was using that time that he was in self imposed exile as training for what would happen in the the following years. And as we close up onto it, this is the excursion from the Red Sea into the land up to Kadesh Barnea. Now I want you to notice that point in the top left of the map, basically the northwest. When Israel camps at Mount Sinai there at uh, in the wilderness of sin, close to the the southwest. That's where they receive the 10 commandments. Then they journey forth and get ready to cross into Canaan. They camp out in this place called Kadesh Barnea. And 12 spies, 12 soldiers of Israel are sent into Canaan to give a report of the land. Now, does God require a reconnaissance report of the land before Israel goes in for their conquest? No. This is a test of character. It is a test of faith. And it is that incident that sets up the 40 years of the wilderness wanderings. So let's go back in just a second. Let's talk about the tabernacle itself. The tabernacle is a portable sanctuary that was used as a place where the people of Israel would come into contact with the presence of God. Of course, God is is omnipresent, but in this specific area, this basically set up as a proxy for the great throne room of the universe, only it was here on earth. It was in this place that they would provide sacrifices. It was this place that they would have fellowship offerings. It was this place where they would see the Shekinah of God as revealed over the mercy seat as a pillar of fire by night, as a cloud by day. So the structure, the furnishings, and the very adornment are all very detailed in the book of Exodus, including uh, in the Holy of Holies, along the veil and even the coverings, the initial fine linen coverings, there are seraphim, there are angels, images of angels, not intended to be worshipped, but intended to be a reminder, a suggester, a, a, a vocation, a teaching tool of the reality of God. And they were carefully stitched by hand all around the throne of God, all around the mercy seat to represent the throne room of God. Everything that we do here on earth in worship is a reflection or is supposed to be a reflection of a heavenly reality. Write that down. Everything we do here on earth in worship is supposed to be a reflection of a heavenly reality where we basically reflect back to God the love that he shares with us in some way, shape, or form. Usually that's by sharing the story of God's redemptive plan. Even in church services today, even in a Baptist church like this, which we consider a non-liturgical church, There are nevertheless elements of the Christ event where, for instance, on any given Sunday, which is the Lord's Day, not Sabbath day. Sabbath day is Saturday. Sunday is the Lord's Day, a mini Easter, where we come together. We form the body of Christ. We lift our voices in song celebrating Christ. Just as he taught, we sit down together and we learn about Christ through the preaching of the word, the reading of the word. And then we have a time where we can come to Christ, where we remember His death, burial, and resurrection, either through the waters of baptism or through the partaking of the Lord's Supper. And then just as the people, just as the 12 apostles were sent forth, we also are then set forth at the end to go back into the world to carry the light of Christ with us. The worship service itself is supposed to be a reflection of the Christ event every Sunday. That same theology prevails everything that we do, even in this case where the tabernacle is constructed as an earthly representation of a heavenly reality. This is where ceremonies, sacrificial offerings took place. This is also a visible teaching tool where God carefully chooses to reveal himself and his nature to humanity. Now there are a lot of prophetic symbols in its construction from the colors used to the materials used. Brass, because it's capable of withstanding heat, is a prophetic symbol of judgment. Gold is a prophetic symbol of deity, not just wealth, but of kingship. Silver is, of course, a symbol of sacrifice, a symbol of blood. If you went to the sanctuary and you had to purchase your sacrifice because you were coming afar off, you would only be allowed to do so in silver. Silver is emblematic of blood, and silver was used as the foundation sockets on which the tabernacle was established. The lamp, of course, as we saw not only here, but in the temple of Solomon and in the book of Revelation, the lampstand represents the light of truth the light of righteousness. We hear that preached about in John chapter 3. The people of evil love the darkness because they want to conceal their evil. But those who are of the light love the light because they want to live as a reflection of God's own love. Anyway, moving on. Bread as the bread of presence, which is set out in a table there for the priests, is a symbol of fellowship. And we can refer that back to uh, the vision of, of Joseph where you have the baker and the wine steward. You can also see that back in Abraham's day where he tithes to Melchizedek, the prophet, priest, and king of Salem. And Salem returns with wine and unleavened bread as fellowship. And of course, incense, which is a hallmark of prayer and priesthood. Uh, If you want another example of that, remember the three gifts that were brought to Jesus upon his birth or shortly after his birth, rather, by the wise men, the magi, which were gold, being a symbol of deity, frankincense, a form of incense, which represented his priestly office, and unfortunately myrrh, which is an embalming agent, which was a symbol of what? His sacrifice. Anyway, moving on. The coverings of the temple, the roof of the temple, this is listed in reverse order to the way that it was laid on top of the tent of meeting, the first layer was a very ornate, embroidered linen that we talked about earlier, with images of angels upon it. The next layer was a layer of goat's hair, uh, which was reminiscent of the scapegoat—the the goat that was there was one goat uh, on the day of atonement that was sacrificed for the sins of Israel as a nation. Another one that was basically imbued with the sin and then set forth in the wilderness. There was next ram skins that were dyed red, being emblematic, of course, of, of sacrifice. And lastly, a badger or porpoise skins, uh, depending upon your translation, which were water resistant, which were there emblematic of protection. So this is the basic layout of the tabernacle and its surroundings. Now the the temple, when it was built, was a larger scale version of this device. You have an external courtyard, you have the altar of sacrifice, you have the laver of water, and then you have the tabernacle proper, the sanctuary proper. This is also an image of how we approach God in fellowship. First, we have to be purified. Nothing sinful can enter into God's presence. And all sin must be cleansed how? Only by the shedding of blood is there what? Remission of sin. There first, first must be a sacrifice. Next, there must be purification. You come before God, you have to be bathed, so to speak. We commemorate that now as Baptists through, well, Baptism symbolic of the death, burial, and resurrection, the very thing that makes us clean before God, justified before a holy God. And then once we go through that, we can then enter into the holy place. The holy place has two emblems that we really need to concern ourselves with first. It's on either side. The next thing that you see once you enter into the curtain, into the holy place... On one side is the table of showbread, or in some of your translations, which means the same thing, the table of the presence, the table of the presence, meaning the place where the priests have fellowship with God. Next is the seven-headed lampstand, what we call the menorah, which is the only light found in the sanctuary. Again, the light of God, the light of truth. The number seven, of course, being emblematic of God's perfection, completeness, holiness. And then right in front of the veil, right in front of the veil, which has stitched on it the garden angels with a sword of fire, if memory serves, almost like the guardian angel guarding the pathway to God via Eden. Right in front of that, there is a golden altar on which incense is to be burned. Incense being, again, a symbol of prayers. We see this in the book of Revelation where an angel brings a bowl of flaming incense before the throne of God and God breathes in the prayers of the saints. And next, in a perfectly cubic chamber, behind the veil with the guardian angels stitched upon it, in a perfectly cubic chamber. And, And note this the sanctuary is divided in thirds. One third of it is the Holy of Holies, two thirds of it is the holy place. Now if you go to a church in America, chances are good that this very same ratio forms the bulwark of your church. If you're in Europe somewhere, churches are mostly, or cathedrals, depending upon where you go, are mostly formed in a crucifix form. They look like a giant cross. But in America, both for practical reasons and because we still wanted to reflect something of God's, we designed ours as a rectangle where one third of it is reserved off in this, what we call the chancel area, platform, stage, whatever you want to call it, the place where the Word of God is proclaimed, and two thirds in front of it for the holy place where the people, the priesthood of all believers, sit. Does that make sense? So everything that we do is a reflection of a heavenly reality. And of course, in that cubic area there, the Holy of Holies is where the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of of Testimony sits. And once a year on the Day of Atonement, after tremendous ceremonial preparation, and this is where a sacrifice, the washing, uh, adorning oneself with the appropriate priestly attire, after making the sacrifice of, of the... For the nation of Israel, once a year, the high priest of Israel, after tremendous ceremonial preparation, can go and is to go into the holy of holies, and to sprinkle the sacrifice's blood upon the mercy seat. And what this sets up? This sets up a pathetic image that we have to understand. Within the Ark of the Covenant is the broken law of God. Remember, when Moses comes down off of Mount Sinai and he sees the children of Israel in rebellion against God, they've made a golden calf. They are dancing uh, shamefully before this thing, sacrificing to it instead of the one true God. What does Moses do with the two tablets of the covenant? He throws them down and shatters them. So as God is looking at his footstool, which is the Ark of the Covenant, as God from heaven is looking down on his footstool, he sees the broken law. But once a year again, after tremendous ceremonial preparation and cleansing, the the, the priest of Israel comes in and sprinkles the blood of the sacrifice over the mercy seat. And God doesn't see the broken law. He sees the sacrifice that cleanses. Think about that for a second as a Christian, as a New Testament believer. What does God see? If if you're not in Christ yet, what does God see when he looks at you? He sees sin. He sees the broken law. Once you come into Christ, once you accept his substitutionary atonement, his sacrifice for your sin, what does he see? He sees the blood of his own son. He no longer sees the broken law. That's the image that this system is setting up. We're going to hear about that in Paul's own words in just a second. So, this is another image of the temple from the outside. Of course, you've got uh, the entrance curtain, you have the perimeter boundary, you have the altar, the, bra- the brass altar of sacrifice, basically and I hate to say it, please forgive me for saying this, but it's a giant barbecue. It really is. Because once the animal has been sacrificed and drained of its blood, the animal becomes a meal. It is thrown on the altar. Part of it, the best parts of it are burned up, But some, and some of it are reserved to the priests. But if it's a fellowship offering especially, it is shared as a meal between the priests and the whoever is bringing it forth. The bronze and wash laver, the tabernacle proper. Uh, the artists there from, um, from Logos have actually included a, a pillar of smoke. Incidentally, we do thank them for uh, being able to reference their images. And the, the coverings of the tent of meeting itself. This is a, is a more of a close-up of the tabernacle precinct. And here's a little bit more on the inside, a little bit of a more ornate view of the furnishings of the tabernacle, where, of course, you have the outer veil, the different coverings, each with the ceremonial significance, the holy place, the place of fellowship between the priests and God, the Ark of Incense, where the the sacrifice of prayer is offered, and then, of course, the Ark of the Covenant, which represents the throne or in some, case, in some passages, the footstool of God. So in Leviticus, Leviticus in summation is the instruction of the priesthood. All priests over Israel at this time have to be of the tribe of Levi, but they also have to be a descendant of Aaron. All priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests. There are some Levites that serve as guards of the tabernacle of caretakers of its equipment, and of even the praetorian guard later on of the king of Israel. They are exempted from military service. They're not counted in most censuses because they are never used as soldiers with the exception of being the king's guard and the guards of the temple in in this point in time, the tabernacle. The book of Leviticus also tells us that in order to have fellowship with God, we also have to heed his words when he says, be holy just as I am holy. Righteousness is important to God. And as Paul tells us, there are none righteous, no, not one. So every time we approach God, we have to go, go through a ceremony of sacrifice to atone for our sins and our sin nature. And we'll hear more about that in just a second. There are standards all throughout the law, particularly in Leviticus, of moral living, of what God considers justice and mercy, and also his requirements for worship. There are also both assigned penalties and remedies. There's always a thread of grace through every page of the Bible, Old and New Testament. So accessibility to fellowship with God requires atonement. Atonement requires a blood sacrifice. And again, Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin. And all this again anticipates the Christ event. Jesus himself said the volume of the book is written of me. So there are certain kinds of sacrifices that are detailed in the book of Leviticus. Again, there's a lot more detail of this in our, our past podcasts on the subject. That in very brief, there is a sin offering which covers unintentional sin. You can think of that in today's time as Christians. You can think of that as being a sacrifice for the sin nature. For the fact that we all carry that human nature, that sinfulness within us. And there are more sins that we carry with us that we can count. How many of you can remember every single sin you've committed today? Just today, yes. And I know we're all giggling because we, there, we don't know in this particular case, this sin offering was made to cover the fact that we have that nature as part of us. There's the guilt offering, the offering of atonement, which is to make atonement for individual sins of guilt. Because remember, this is a theocracy, This is a nation founded on the rule, not of man, but of God. So if you commit a crime in Israel, you not only commit a crime in tort reform, uh, torts, let's say, you not only commit a crime against your fellow Israelite, you also commit a crime against who? Against God. So all that has to be taken care of, not just to repair your relationship in justice with your fellow uh, citizen, but with God as well. We often forget that. Voluntary offerings, on the other hand, are something that is offered for the sake of thanksgiving, for the sake of deepening one's devotional commitment, and for the sake of, of, in, of increasing one's fellowship with the Almighty. That's why we hear detailed burnt offerings, meal or grain offerings, and of course peace offerings. In Christianity today, we would see those as, well, first of all, the mandatory has been taken care of for us. The mandatory sacrifice has been covered for us through the blood of Christ as a propitiation of sin, meaning that God's wrath that we formerly were in has now been completely sated through the sacrifice of his Son. Sin is sin. But for the sake of the voluntary commitments, devotion, fellowship, and thanksgiving, uh, we as Baptists have a habit of saying that we, we, we work not to become saved, but we work because what? We are saved. We have been saved. So everything that we do, be it the giving of offerings, be it the work that we do to support our missionaries, be it the work that we do as evangelists and missionaries ourselves, be it just helping to maintain the house of God or the devotional time that we have, the quiet time that we have for that 30 minutes alone in prayer. That's all a sacrifice of praise to God. The time that we commit, our resources that we commit, the amount of ourselves that we commit to Him is all about drawing close to Him, celebrating Him, giving thanks to Him, and deepening our relationship with Him. Not again for the sake of, of making ourselves righteous, but in praise, honor, and celebration, thanksgiving for what He's done for us. Does that make sense? Don't you forget though the commandment of Matthew twenty-eight, nineteen and twenty? Go into all the world uh, mandatory than a, a voluntary. That's okay. Good point. If you didn't hear that at home, I was just reminded that the Great Commission is not voluntary. Go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them whatsoever that I have commanded you, baptizing, actually I got that, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you always, even into the end of the world, or into the age, depending on your translation. So, yeah, I would not consider that mandatory. Thank you. The fruit of a Christian is what? More Christians. So that is something that we need to... But again, there are some... I think there are even some denominations out there that claim that that is a work through which you maintain your salvation. God maintains your salvation. But it is something that we have been commanded to do, all of us, not just the missionaries, not just the evangelists, not just the pastors, but all of us have a responsibility to, as Peter puts it in 2 Peter, I think it's chapter 3, if memory serves, uh, be always ready to give an account of the hope that is within you, but do so in all gentleness and respect. Anyway, let's move on. All right. So there is also within this book this strange idea of how to organize time. In the Mosaic custom, there is a, a sevenfold everything. The word the number seven has extreme significance. Uh, there is a week, of course, of days. And when we say, when you see the word week in the Bible, particularly in your older translations. Week does not necessarily mean Monday through Sunday. Week can mean a gathering of seven somethings. So you have a week of days, the Shabbat. You have a week of weeks, the Shavuot. Uh, We'll get on to that in just a second. A week of years, which leads to a sabbatical year, a year where you are to let the ground stay fallow, give the promised land a rest as well. This is also an agricultural technique that the rest of the world later on adapted in crop rotation and so forth. But in Israelite custom, it's about faithfulness to God and believing that God will provide. So you don't just rotate your crops. You let the whole ground rest for one year, every seventh year. And then later on, when seven sevenths have occurred after 49 Sabbaths of years, You add one more to it, so every 50 years past the time of the exodus, you celebrate what is called the year of Jubilee. At this time, this entire year-long festival, all land reverts to its designated tribe or family. One of the unique things about the way that the land was parceled out, again, the promised land is very precious to the Jewish people. Never underestimate that. Every family uh, from the time of Joshua was given a parcel of land that was their own. If you were to sell the land as one Jewish person to another, and you would never sell land to to a Gentile. That just wasn't done. But if you were one Jewish person selling land to another, you were not selling the land as we think of it today. You were basically leasing the use of that land for a certain amount of time. And once the year of Jubilee happened, it all snapped back to its original owners. All slaves were freed. If you had to indenture yourself to somebody because of of your indebtedness or something like that, uh, you were automatically set free at the year of Jubilee and all debts were forgiven. In fact, when Peter is talking about the restitution of all things in Acts chapter 3, There are many commentators of the book of Acts that believe that this is kind of the thing that he's hearkening back to, only a restitution, a jubilee in Christ instead of in the Levitical sense. In the book of Leviticus, there is also detailed seven feasts of Israel, three of which are mandatory. If you are an able-bodied Jewish person there are three feasts where you have are it is compulsory you must go to the temple to worship most of these happen in quick succession for instance passover week doesn't just contain the feast of passover it also contains the feast of unleavened bread and then on the uh, on the excuse me on the sunday following the passover week you celebrate the feast of first fruits that one should be especially powerful for us because the day of Christ's resurrection is the Feast of First Fruits. It is the Sunday following Passover week. Paul actually refers, he, he knocks this point home when he refers to Christ as the first fruits of the grave. Forty days after that, there is the summer feast, the only summer feast, which is the Feast of Weeks or Shavuot, what we call the Feast of. Pentecost in the church. This is the day that uh, the Holy Spirit was poured out and the church was unified. The, there are three fall feasts. There's the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, and the Feast of Tabernacles. But I want you to know is which of those three is the compulsory feast. It's not the Day of Atonement. It's not Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish New Year. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. And it also is the Feast of Tabernacles that according to the book of Revelation we will be celebrating in the New Jerusalem. So in brief, Passover is interesting and as Christians we really need to pay attention to it because every Old Testament feast has a fulfillment found in the New Testament remember that the jewish religious calendar during the first passover was turned on its head there are two months one in the spring the month of nisan which is now the religious new year's beginning there's the feast of excuse me there's the month of tishri which is the seventh month in the jewish calendar which used to be the beginning of its civil calendar So you have two calendars in the society. You have a religious calendar that begins with Passover, and you have, in the spring, and you have a civil calendar that begins in the fall on Feast of Trumpets. So the Lamb is examined on Nisan 10. This is also the time when a certain itinerant preacher started on muleback down the streets of Jerusalem. So the lamb, the sacrifice was examined. It was to be it was to have no imperfections, neither spot nor blemish, no broken bones when it was offered. In fact, many times these Jewish families would take a lamb into their home and they would nurture it and care for it as a pet before the sacrifice to kind of deepen in the fact that a sacrifice, a meaningful sacrifice, had to be made for the sake of redemption. It was offered on dusk leading into the 14th day of Nisan. Now, again, Jewish days begin at evening. They begin at sundown because the, in Genesis, the evening and the morning were the first day. So a Jewish day does not begin at sun up like it does from us, with us from the western side of things. A Jewish day begins at sundown. So when the sacrifices begin for Passover, they are offered at dusk on the 14th day of Nisan, and that commemorates, remember, Passover, it's not the people passing out of Egypt that's being commemorated, it's the passing over of the angel of death in Egypt. This is the Lord's Passover. And they were rescued by the angel of death because the blood was covering their home. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, which occurs in the same week. This is when the Seder meal, if you've ever heard of, or or been honored enough by Jewish friends to be welcomed into a Seder meal, this is the day that is observed. Leaven is emblematic of sin, so by partaking of unleavened bread, you're declaring yourself in fellowship with the people of God, separating yourself from from, from the other nations and aligning with the worship of the one true God. Now, what is unique about this particular meal? As Christians, I want you to understand this part of the ceremony. At the beginning of it, there is a bag that holds three pieces of matzah. There's these giant unleavened bread or or sheet crackers, basically. The middle one, not the first, not the last, the middle one is broken in half Is wrapped in something that's either a pouch or a napkin what looks like a miniature pillowcase and it's hidden away somewhere in the home and the youngest child during the latter part of the Seder meal is tasked with running around the house and finding it and when that child does he brings it back and he gets a little piece of candy or a quarter or something And that piece of matzah, the afakomen, what functionally means dessert, but what actually means I come again, is broken and is handed out to the family. And it is that matzah which represents the meal that was first given in Israel. It represents the meat and the sacrifice of that first Passover lamb. And it is that piece of matzah that Jesus raises in the presence of his disciples and says, this is my body broken for you. He's hearkening, he's taking the symbolism of the old and he's explaining it as he's unveiling the new. So this was a symbol, again, a memorial of that original Passover sacrifice. And there's also four cups, depending upon which uh, resource you look at. One is called the cup of bringing out, the cup of deliverance, the cup of blessing, the cup of taking out. And there are some rabbinic texts that link that to four promises made in Exodus chapter 6. Other sources you'll hear it called the cup of sanctification, the cup of deliverance, the cup of blessing. This is the last cup that Jesus took. As he says, I will not drink again the fruit of the vine until I drink it anew with you, my father's king. So the cup of praise wasn't taken at that point in time. Jesus basically took upon himself a Nazarite vow up until the time of redemption. But the cup that he lifts up and says that this is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you and for many, that's the cup of redemption. And that's not a coincidence. So moving on, the Feast of first fruits, that's celebrated on the Sunday following the Feast of Unleavened Bread, following Passover. So again, the 10th day of Nisan and the 14th day of Nisan, because they're calendar days, they can fall on just about any day of the week. So depending upon the week, you have uh, the, you have the, um, you have Passover, you have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, You have the Shabbat or the the Saturday, the Sabbath day following those festivals. And then the next day on Sunday, you have the Feast of First Fruits. It's it's, It's a harvest festival. It's an early harvest festival that basically is there to celebrate the first sprouts of grain from the barley harvest. It's a day of national thanksgiving, and it commemorates the return of Israel to the land and their first harvest. Basically, it's them celebrating the promised land coming back to life after their slavery in Egypt. Does that make sense? I hope that it does because it is this very day as the smoke was coming out of the temple, as the sheaves were being presented, that another first fruits was rising. Easter is a misnomer for us if you're in Christ. The word Easter is applied to this day because when the Israelites were in Babylon, the Feast of First Fruits coincided with the Babylonian Feast of Ishtar. So the day that we're actually celebrating is not Easter, so to speak, but it's the Feast of First Fruits, if you want to get technical. Incidentally, the whole bunnies and eggs thing, that's where it comes from as well. Let's move on. The Feast of Weeks in the summer, 40 days after the Feast of Firstfruits. In the counting of the Omer, there is the Feast of Pentecost. This is another compulsory feast of the people of God. It was at this point in time when the Holy Spirit descended upon the people of, uh, the, people of the, the church. God doesn't work in coincidences. Part of the reason this was such a unique occurrence is because this is a compulsory feast. So you had Jews from all walks of life, from all over the Mediterranean world, flooding into Jerusalem. So when they saw on the steps of the temple that the Holy Spirit was descending in tongues of flame or or resembling tongues of flame over the apostles and they heard the gospel proclaimed in their own first language, the unique thing was this more than any other time of the year was a time when Jerusalem was absolutely packed and more people could hear the word proclaimed at one sitting than any other time throughout the rest of the year. Again, God does not work in coincidences. So this commemorates the bringing of Torah because it's the end of Moses' 40-day fast, if you will. This commemorates the bringing of Torah from Mount Sinai to the people of God. It also incorporates the giving of leavened bread before God. This never other happens any other place. Rabbinical sources disagree as to why it's the case here. But leavening means something unique. Who were the first converts to Christianity? Jews. Five thousand of them in a single sitting give or take. Who were the next almost immediately after that? If you're from a genealogy, anything but Jewish, raise your hand. Yes, you are included in. That's what we believe to be the symbolic meaning. The Jew and the Gentile, the people of God now coming together. Again, it's a foreshadowing of the church and a foreshadowing of the outpouring of Leavened bread is the Gentiles, those who were alienated from God previously, now being brought before God. Feast of Trumpets, first day of the civil new year, Rosh Hashanah. It's the beginning of a period of fasting and commitment prior to the Day of Atonement called the Days of Affliction. The Day of Atonement, otherwise known as Yom Kippur, is the day of national repentance and sacrifice. This is when the high priest and the only time that the high priest approaches the Holy of Holies to make the blood sacrifice at the mercy seat on behalf of the nation of Israel. And this is also the time that the scapegoat is sent into the wilderness, bearing the sins of God's people. So... When the modern day church, uh, really follows, uh, Not all of them. Um, I, I know that they do at least Feast of Tabernacles I, the Synagogues these days have a modified version of what we're learning about here. The reason it's modified is because sacrifices cannot be offered unless there is a temple standing. In order for animals to be sacrificed, there must be a temple standing. So some aspects of these, like in tabernacles, you'll find a Jewish family who will go into their backyard and they'll build the type of structure that's detailed uh, in the books of Moses, like if memory serves, the wind has to be able to blow through them at some point and they have to be able to see the stars in the sky. Um, some, in some of your translations it's called the Festival of Booths. Um, but anyway. So they're not doing uh, animal sacrifices? No, they're not doing animal sacrifices. But there are some of the aspects, like in Feast of Trumpets, They do blow trumpets, and they do go on a a ritual fast for 10 days before the Day of Atonement, that kind of thing. So there are parts of the worship that they still do incorporate. they yeah the 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 issue the issue is and if you can't hear this at home the question is how do they fulfill their commitment if they can't make sacrifices if i'm if i'm understanding it correctly ceremonially do they do it some other way i guess right now if i understand it correctly they view the way that they live their life in committing themselves to torah to um, the good works as their sacrifice. But under strict interpretation to the Mosaic Law, they they are unable to do sacrifices because there isn't a temple standing at at present. Um, I can check in with a few of my rabbi friends to to verify that for you. In fact, that would probably be good to do for next session. Um, Anyway, tabernacles, Uh, families construct and stay in temporary shelters, Uh, and and a lot of these get really ornate. Some of them actually uh, are thematic. There can be Disney shelters, there can be uh, Star Trek shelters, I've even seen Marvel comic book shelters, but uh, some of the, the ceremonial component has to remain where there's an open roof so that you can see the stars and a passage where the wind can blow through. Basically to remind, to commemorate the wilderness wanderings and the type of structure that they would have had during the period of the book of Numbers. Um, It's also prophetically speaking of going from a temporary place to a permanent home. Remember in the book of John in chapter 1, it's more literally translated that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us made his temporary dwelling place among us in fact you can think of yourself as a tabernacle because this is not our permanent home the old mud hut so to speak is a shadow of a reality yet to come really quickly and i'll i'll pause before going on because i see the time i'll pause before going into the book of deuteronomy numbers again means through the wilderness it includes two censuses. Those are taken from men of military capability. So when you consider the numbers, consider adding four to every one, because the only people that are being counted in these censuses are men of military capability. It centers on the passing of a doubting, such, uh, doubting and very rebellious generation. So the camp of Israel, The camp of Israel is divided into four camps. And if you've ever seen our Spurgeon Award winning series on the book of Numbers, you know where I'm probably going to go with this. Just to kind of give you an idea of how integrated a message system the Bible really is. Everywhere that Israel camped, once it was reorganized at Mount Sinai, it had to camp in a very guarded, very military fashion. So all of the tribes were reorganized into four subgroups. One headed by Judah, one headed by Ephraim, one headed by Reuben, one headed by Dan. The camp of Judah, for instance, included the tribes of Issachar and Zebulun. It was the largest of the camps at 186,400 soldiers. And the ensign of the tribe of Judah was a lion. Ephraim, which also encompassed the half-tribe of Manasseh and the tribe of Benjamin, uh, the uh, children of Rachel, camped west of the tabernacle, west of the Levites. They were the smallest group with 108,100 fighting men. Their ensign was an ox, a beast of burden, a show of strength. Reuben also encompassed the tribes of Simeon and Gad, It camped to the south of the Levites and it numbered 151,450. Its emblem was a man, a fighting man, a soldier. The camp of Dan also included the tribes of of Asher, excuse me, Naphtali. It camped to the north of the Levites. It was 157,600, pardon the extra zero, that was my, my mistake strong. And Dan originally had a serpent as its ensign, but remember that's the symbol for sin. So later on in the book of Numbers, that changes to an eagle attacking a snake, and then later on in history, it becomes just an eagle. So the camp of Levi, which consisted of two of 22,300 men, formed a square around the tabernacle. This was emblematic of the divine presence. And all other camps positioned themselves according to the cardinal directions. In Torah, you can if you're, if you're told to march north, you have to march north. You cannot march northeast because it's neither north nor east. Remember, rabbinical Judaism, Mosaic Judaism, you cannot camp to the northwest because it's technically neither north nor west. You can only camp in the cardinal directions. So using Levi as a model, Levi guarding the tabernacle in a square formation you had to position your camp in a similar way to the north, to the south, to the east, and to the west. And what this did is it set up a a quadruple um, pincering maneuver so that if anybody tried to attack the camp of Israel, they would naturally go to the weakest point, which is straight at the camp of Levi, and you'd have two sides that could close in instantly. So again, they've got the camp of Levi and that's going to be our our measurement. Let's take a look at how this was organized. The camp of Judah again formed a column to the east away from the entrance to the tabernacle. His sigil again was the lion. The camp of Dan was situated to the north. Its sigil was the eagle. Incidentally uh, their signs also have a significance. In fact, these four signs are also attributed based on their prophetic meaning to the four Gospels. John is usually uh, set up with the eagle because John focuses on the divinity of Christ. Anyway, Ephraim uh, formed the column to the west. His sigil was an ox which stood for strength, service, and so forth. And Reuben formed the column to the south. Sigil was a man, image of creation. Luke, which of course emphasizes Jesus and his humanity. So in the book of Numbers, we get this very strange scene between a king and a prophet for hire, Balaam and Balak. And we get this weird scene that we're about to kind of visually describe. After he had been hired... The next morning, uh, starting with chapter 22, verse 41. The next morning, Balak took Balaam up to Bamoth baal and from there he could see the outskirts of the Israelite camp. So he's on this high place where he can see the camp of Israel and its formation. And he does something strange. This guy, this prophet has been hired by this king to curse Israel, to get get God to lay a curse upon Israel his own people. This is what happens in that story. Something happens when the prophet sees the camp and he hears the voice of God. Balaam said, this is the the prophet for hire incidentally, said, build me seven altars here and prepare seven bulls and seven rams for me. And Balak did, the king did as Balaam the prophet said, and two of them offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Then Balaam said to Balak, stay here beside your offering while I go aside. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet with me. Whatever he reveals to me, I will tell you. Then he went off to a barren height. God met with him and Balaam said, I have prepared seven altars. And on each altar, I have offered a bull and a ram. The Lord said, put a word in Balaam's mouth. Uh, Excuse me, the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, go back to Balak and give him this word. So he went back to him and found him standing beside his offering with all of the Moabite officials. And he thinks, if I can just separate these people from God's favor, militarily I can take them. I've heard about what they did in Egypt, but I don't care. If I can get, if I can get them away from God's favor, if I can use this prophet to my own advantage, then I can conquer this runaway kingdom. Then Balak spoke his message. And remember, this is after he sees Israel, Israel encamped. Balaam spoke this message. Balak brought me from Aram, the king of Moab from the eastern mountains. Come, he said. Curse Jacob for me. Come, denounce Israel. How can I curse those whom God has not cursed? How? Can- this is a prophet for hire, mind you. How can I denounce those whom God has not denounced? From the rocky peaks I see them, from the heights I view them, I see a people who live apart and who do not consider themselves one of the nations. Who, cannot, who, can, who can count the dust of Jacob or number even a fourth of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous. May, th- may my final end be like theirs. So what did the prophet see? If we had an aerial shot of what he saw from the side of the mountain, facing from the east, this is what we would see. In the middle you have the Ark of the Covenant surrounded by the tabernacle, surrounded by the tribe of Levi. All the other camps, based on their numbers, each block represents about 22,000 people based on the Israeli number. This is the shape that they see, that he sees. But also for our sake, for those of you that study the book of Revelation, I want you to notice that the mercy seat is surrounded by the sigils bearing the faces of the angels, the cherubim, the ox, the lion, The man and the eagle. This is the same, this is an earthly reflection of a heavenly reality. Isn't that interesting? It's even more unique is that what, what what shape is this? First of all, can we agree on that? This is a this is a cross, but no ordinary cross. This is a Roman cross. The Persians invented crucifixion, but this is not the cross they used. The Persians invented an X-shaped cross that was a permanent structure fixed into the ground where they would tie people like this, let them dangle there, and let the birds, the carrion birds, have their way with them until they were dead and asphyxiated and leave them there in the sun. It was Rome that took this process to this step. This is an early, very ancient, even by Roman standards, Foreshadowing of something that would come later. The New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. The Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. So, I hope you learned something interesting today. We will take back up the book of Deuteronomy and take a, a brief look at the book of Joshua next Wednesday. In the meantime, really quickly, there are some questions I'd like for you to consider along with your groups. Um, I want you to think about this. Number one, uh, make sure that you're meeting together and make sure that you're discussing with each other what took you by surprise, what you learned that was new, and how it's impacted you, including and especially your walk with Christ. But for one discussion question on you personally as you're continuing to do your readings, I want you to think about this, please. What does righteousness mean to me? What does righteousness mean to me? God places a very high value on the way that we conduct ourselves. With your groups. And I don't mean the legalistic checklists, but where we are now as Christians. In the Old Testament, for the sake of the law, yes, it would be do this, do this, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. But under terms of the new covenant of grace, what does righteousness mean? What does taking the name of God and portraying him well before others, what does that mean to you? And all God's people said. Amen. Heavenly Father, please help us not only to remember the lessons that we learned from those of ages past, those who you gave for us as types and examples, but help us to integrate their lessons into our lives so that when others see us, they would see you lived out through us. So help us, Lord, to be living reflections of your love, your goodness, and your holiness. Use this time to shape us and mold us into the image of your Son and bless these hours that we spend with each other so that through them and through the proclaiming of your word, Lord, we would love you all the more and we would love our neighbor in such a way they would see you they would hear your message and they would come to you before it is everlastingly too late in the matchless name of Christ we do pray amen thank you for joining us at Hylon Baptist Church we pray that you were blessed by today's message at Hylon, we believe that when you love God you share his word when you love others you spread the gospel we would love for you to join us next time and if possible to join us in person To contact or learn more about us, to donate to our ongoing ministry, or most importantly, to learn about the salvation offered to you through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, visit us at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. Once again, thank you and God bless you.